You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm Rob McClure. Economic, functional, rhetorical. Adjective Collective member Carter John Rice is currently pursuing a Doctor of Arts degree at Ball State University in music theory and composition. His music has been featured at festivals and conferences such as Seamus, ICMC, and Society of Composers Incorporated. He was the inaugural recipient of the Concordia College Composer of Promise Award. He is the national student representative for SCI and currently teaches at Indiana University East. Our conversation focused on his work's launch sequence for fixed media and 704 for flute and piano. I'm always curious to to talk to another Bowling Green grad and and get their and get kind of get their take on on their time there. So so what was your experience? Oh, well, I mean, I can say pretty emphatically uh, and unapologetically that I really loved my time there. Uh, I mean, especially from where I came from um, with my undergraduate institution, which was just a small liberal arts college up in Minnesota that we sort of referred to as the bubble um, (laughs) because we have just no real connection to the outside world. And it was this tremendously conservative music school where like, um, like, you know, Stravinsky was sort of off limits. It was just, it was very... Um, very small feeling. And so when I got to Bowling Green, I remember I, I started taking classes and I had this very inflated ego because I was like, I'm a graduate student now. <laughs> you know, like all should bow to my will. You know, I have no <laughs> idea what I was doing. And and like because it's Bowling Green, all of these like upperclassmen undergraduates were just destroying me with knowledge of like contemporary repertoire and like music technology. And I was just like, I put up this facade of like, oh, I totally know as much as you. <laughs> like, and, uh, and then I remember like I had this immense pressure working with uh, with Eleni Lilios because I was a huge fan of her music, and the reason I ended up at Bowling Green was because um, my professor at my undergraduate did his doctorate at UNT the same time as her, and they knew each other, so he said, you should check this place out, and I fell in love with her music, and I got there, and I was one of her her TAs, and I was taking classes with her, and I was just like, I was just nervous <laughs> the whole time, so I was trying so hard not to mess up that every time, you know, the harder you try not to mess up, the more... The easier it up. is, so yeah. First, yeah, <laughs> so my first year was just... Just a very stressful time, um, but eventually, you know, I kind of got into a groove and really, really enjoyed the the overall time there. What I, I mean, I w- when I was at BG, I was I was an undergrad and I was in the music education program and um, I was a percussionist. So I I don't f- like I was always around composers, but I never, you know. I never got the full experience and and I'm always I'm especially curious about Eleni because I mean I've always known her like I, I I knew her as another professor there but I was never her student and oftentimes the the um the undergrads that she taught you know they would I think at that time she was teaching undergrads in a group maybe or or some sort of class and she would always have you know, musicians come in at the end of the semester to read their pieces. And she, whenever there was percussion, she usually asked me or Dan Trampty. Um, and that was like how I knew her. In addition to, uh, in BG, I worked at the, the Kroger down, um, Mm-hmm. wherever i can't remember what the street is it's on main right it's on north main i think so yeah so i worked at the yeah. kroger and that's where she came in that's where she came to do her shopping all the time so i always saw, saw her in the produce department and that's you know we talked there but like i was a huge fan of her music then and i've become just a way bigger fan since then so i'm always curious about her as a teacher 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I spent three semesters studying with her, which is longer than, than most people do, you know, for private lessons. Some people between classes and other stuff, and if, if they're doctoral students, they might spend more time. But I did two semesters, private study, and then another one where she was also my, my thesis advisor. So we worked together a lot. And yeah, I mean, it was at times it was stressful, I think is the 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 <laughs> friendliest way to say if it, if it was, you know, and, and I, I mean this in, in nothing but good ways, because I think I learned more in maybe even just my first semester with her and overall my first year where I also spent a semester studying with Chris Dietz, which was great. And they, their knowledge, you know, complemented each, you know, very well. Sure, yeah. And I, I, I remember even in my very, I mean, I can say this, I've never, I've never felt more like walking out on a lesson than I have. Uh, when I was with Eleni Lilios, and it wasn't, be- and it, it, it's not because she was wrong. It might be because she was so right. You know what I right, mean? But yeah. I, I like, um, and you know, taking a ruler to my scores to actually like say, well, are your margins really what you say they are, Carter? And if not, like, here's a red pen on your score, and and going on. So so lessons were great. They were very, um, very insightful, and I think that they, um very profoundly changed the way I approached just composition in general, not necessarily just improving what I already had on the page or in the audio session, but changing the way I got to that material in the first place, which was very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, she, she has been uh, a big, um, I I guess supporter, supporter isn't really Mm -hmm. the right word. She's just been like, she, she's been a mentor to, to me since I left in mm-hmm. in the best way possible for someone who who never studied with her you know and yeah. she, she's just, she's i mean she's been awesome so anyway oh, yeah and same here i mean whether i'm was there or now you know it's been two and a half years since i graduated from bowling green and she has been as helpful to my career as as anyone in, in any any number of you know aspects i i can't hardly attend a festival without getting some sort of great advice from her in one way or another and it's been very appreciated. So even though, you know, like you say, you might not have studied with her, I can absolutely relate to that experience of like this continued mentorship, which is fantastic. Right. So I want to start by um, looking at your your piece uh, 704. Um, and yeah. uh, so this is for flute and piano. And the title references an apartment in Bowling Green, right? Yes, that was that was where I was living for uh, about a year in Bowling Green, just before I moved to Muncie, actually. Okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's been a while since I thought about where the streets are, you know, where the neighborhoods are in Bowling Green, but I, I looked it up and I realized that I lived like three blocks away from that one year and two blocks away from it the other year. So yeah, it's a pop. It's a nice neighborhood, actually. Right? Yeah, it There's is. a lot of like good housing and it's just close to campus still. Yeah, I liked living there, actually. So how does how does this apartment enter into the piece or 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 does that? that place or how does that place and time enter into the piece yeah so i i mean i i don't know if i'll go into too many details in it but i was in something of a significant relationship in my time at bowling green which came to a not happy ending um right before i moved to muncie and so um 704 um, which was written specifically for my friend Colleen O'Shea Jones, who's a flutist and a, an office mate of mine and a very good friend. She was there and sort of helped me out a lot during this time. And we had talked about writing. I, I've written a couple of pieces for, and we talked about this new one. And I said, well, you know, we were both there during the big fallout of all this. And I think I'd like to base a piece off that to just sort of get this out there. And sometimes it can be, you know, therapeutic in a way to turn, you know, past experiences into uh, artistic expression. And, and that's what that was all about. So it, it's referencing that apartment and, and sort of the, the negative, um, 
experiences that happened in my life shortly before um, completing my time in Bowling Green. And do the, I mean, I guess how, 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 do, how does that emotion translate into, into either material or structure or form for you? Yeah, well, you know, with that piece, it was a lot of quotation, albeit very subtle or, um, you know, very augmented uh, quotation, certainly. So there were a lot of meaningful musical gestures that that had meaning to me and my previous relationship partner. And a lot of those guided uh, some of the motives and pitches and overall structure. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you looked at the score, the the, the tempo markings and the instructions are, are very straightforward. I mean, it, it's pretty easy to read those and get a glimpse of at least what the piece is about. And, uh, you know, it all translated that way in terms of, you know, emotion. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it's... It was a slightly more conservative piece in some ways, uh, you know, than some of the stuff I've written. And I, I guess conservative is a very relative term, but some of the pitch language was a lot more consonant at times and technique and such. It was more melodic. And, and a lot of that was referential to previous things. So so most of it was, you know, sort of a, an allusion back to, to other musical ideas. Mm. So you use consonant as a, you know, as a word that can mean many, yeah, can mean different things to different people. I also thought that um, one of your adjectives you gave me was was a word like that that could me- that could have various meanings, and that's functional. And actually, yeah. <laughs> actually, when I s- you sent that to me, and I was like, really? Okay, well, maybe I'm not maybe I'm not thinking about it in the right way. So, how do you relate func- the, the adjective functional to either your music or yourself? I guess. Yeah, no, that that's a good question. And it, yeah, it might be different than you initially suspect because the word functional obviously is is very loaded when we start talking pitch language and music sure. and theory and all that. And, I, and 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 I really don't mean it in the traditional sense of like functional harmony. I right. think to put the word harmony after it would would not do justice to that adjective at least to, when describing my music. I but I do love the term functional and it's usually one of the first things that I I will ascribe to my music and perhaps I'm doing that more romantically than I'd like to maybe just because I like the idea of it. I don't know how well I capture it, but I've often found that the music of other composers that I most strongly resonate with and some of the goals I try to achieve are to make sure every gesture and every idea and every phrase in my piece has sort of a a function that I could say in one word or another. And a lot of that was, you know... um, influenced by some people like Ligeti, uh, who had a profound influence uh, derived from like Haydn and a lot of those guys, you know, like if you read about how Ligeti taught music composition, he would almost always reference some of like the classical masters, which I thought was really cool. And, uh, you know, so even if it's not necessarily a cadential five to one function, I like, um, you know, if you've read like William Kaplan's treatise on classical form, he comes up with this whole monster list of functions you know like continuation and extension and beginning and arrival right, yeah. and interruption you know and and i've found that at a at a sort of phrase level structure if you're looking at about that time scale of music i like to ascribe function to everything i put on the page and that's been more influential on how i define formal structures than i think anything else i think that there are a growing number of composers who are who want that back in music if you know what I mean, like that they want, I do. Yeah. They they want their they want a phrase, or they want even a pitch, or they want they want it to mean something, and it to go somewhere, and mm-hmm. to have a trajectory. That, and it, I mean, of course, in you know, we're in the 
we're in this land of uh, anything goes at this point in history. But I feel like I, I, I run into more and more composers who are maybe, that's not going back, but but maybe just revisiting this idea of that, yeah, things things should mean something. They should go somewhere. They should have relationships to each other that are clear or, oh, yeah, or at least yeah, hopefully yeah. Cl- hopefully clear to the listener. Yeah, I think that if that if that function you include is not perceivable, you know what I mean, then then to me often I say what is the point? Now I, I understand it might not be perceivable on a first listen and to different people and it it's all tremendously subjective, but I I like their to be something to latch onto on even a first listen in a peace of mind. And I think that occasionally, whether it's academia or just historically, we sometimes get pushed away from that. And I agree. It's, it's nice to see, you know, a few people um, perhaps picking up that, that thought process again. You know, I, I don't know that it was forgotten, just maybe, maybe put down for a little while. And, and I, I'm certainly in the mindset of picking it up for a while.
are there any theoretical concepts that you're you're using to get this functionality like just for instance um when i was uh when i was doing my doctorate a couple other composers and i we took a post-tonal prolongation um seminar from a uh a post postdoc who was teaching there at the time and that was his field of research and having taken that class and you know seeing seeing what the literature out there is on post-tonal prolongation and seeing the techniques it kind of, it really changed the way i think about these long structures in music so is was there anything like that how are how are you achieving uh this level of functionality in your music i i, you know, I would say there are a, a few different things that are perhaps just very conceptual in my mind some which are maybe more theoretical than others but i'd already mentioned um william kaplan's text and i took that to heart actually when i discovered that back when i was um at Bowling Green, and I read that, and I realized that not only uh, can I take a lot of these phrase structures, and and you know whether it's the sentence or the period or all those, you know, and all the hundreds of variations thereof, I can take those and very quickly apply them to my sort of compositional style and language, which I started doing at a more um, cognizant level. I think I, I think I was doing it without realizing it because we all sort of might draw some influence from those you know phrase structures. Sure. Uh, but then I also started. I, I I think I wrote a paper in just like a. a a critical analysis uh, theory class, and I started to realize that, like, for example, Kaplan's definition of the sentence, which is very similar to the one you might learn, you know, as like an undergraduate in theory, um, is everywhere. It was, I looked at uh, Eleni's music, for example, and I realized every phrase was a sentence. And then I looked at Ligeti, and I looked at all the, and I realized that we really haven't gotten away from this idea of like, you say something, and then you say it again, and then you go somewhere, and then you go somewhere else. Yeah, you know, like right. the, yeah, exactly. Like, that's the, you know what I mean? And I, 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 I'm being a little simplistic with it, but I realized that. Uh, you know, whether you're using it intentionally or not was an important thing. And I wanted to start intentionally making use of some of these these rhetorical functions that I think, whether it's innate or whether it's just been conditioned since the ancient Greeks, you know, who really came up with this rhetorical structure of how to uh, how to argue and how to present your idea and your counter idea and all that. And so I absolutely drew inspiration from from that sort of rhetorical practice. And actually, this this past year here at Ball State, I've been studying uh, my my cognate is telecommunications, and as a result, I've gotten to do some more study into classical and modern rhetoric, which has continued to inform me uh, on that compositional front, which has been really satisfying that's really awesome i i you know for the past year i keep i keep putting a like the uh, the the classical studies books in into my amazon cart and i i can never i can <laughs> yeah. never pull the trigger but i i've always felt like if you know i, I when i was at bowling green i i didn't get that um i i think i didn't get that classical training or i or at least i didn't seek it out so mm -hmm. if if i had taken you know if I had taken something about rhetoric or, or something like I, I just feel like I, you know, I need that in a way. Like I, yeah, I want it. See, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to feel like I should seek it out. It's one of those things where, like, once you learn about it, you wonder how you survived before. You know what I mean? It's right. like when yeah. you learn, like, it's like, oh, my God, how did I live without, you know, like, the RX-5 audio editor? <laughs> like, I can, never, I can never be the same again. It was the same thing. You start to learn all these, like, rhetorical functions of, like, presenting ideas and information and how to do it successfully. And you're like, God, you know, they should really teach this to composers because that's exactly what we're doing. Why <laughs> why hasn't this made it into, like, our realm of study? It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. All right, you just convinced me. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to buy the book. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you're you're originally from North Dakota, right? 
Yes, I am from the the great north. <laughs> the great north. From yes. Am I pronouncing this right? Minot. Yes, it is Minot, North Dakota. Okay, and that's how big how big of the city is Minot? Um, it, it's very comparable to Bowling Green actually in size. Now it's a bit bigger. I think it's about fifty thousand or so because of the oil boom it's like exploded mm. it's not even the town i grew up in anymore it's crazy uh but yeah it's about fifty thousand people there's an air base which is one of the reasons the the town has stayed alive this long and uh, you know <laughs> but i mean fifty thousand isn't isn't that much that's that's a relatively small town i i mean yeah it, I, i'm yeah. saying this because i've only grown up in cities so yeah, no that it seems is small, like a small it, town to me it is but it's not you know um it's not like, uh, to me, it was huge because it's the fourth biggest city in North Dakota. And once oh, you get okay. below Minot, well, once you get below Minot, then they start to get, you know, like a uh, hundred people, you know, like, and oh, so th- wow. to me, that was the small town was the towns with 50 and a hundred people that you can drive through in one minute, you know, and, and, uh, then I moved to Fargo, North Dakota, which was the biggest city. And it was like, Ooh, cosmopolitan. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> hey, here we go. You know, <laughs> did that, um, I mean, did that geographic location, do anything for you as a composer just be being around i i mean i don't know what the city is like but i imagine Mm -hmm. that pretty quickly you can get out into the middle of nowhere is that right yeah you can and amazingly enough i rarely did that i think i (laughs) i mean i can't say it never happened but i i think i just really was kind of a albeit a small city but still a city dweller most of my you know like um my my parents um especially my dad at different point were were farmers and so it wasn't i wasn't far removed from that but i was born in the city and just sort of grew up, you know, that, that whole normal life. I mean, I, I do love it up there. I, I can't say that I have the, the John Luther Adams effect of the winter, right. you know, and the, 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 that, that doesn't, I do love winter actually. And I think Indiana is just hotter than the surface of the sun. I can't, oh my I can't God. stand it here. I, I, I know, really? I know that sounds so lame. I know, but I, I remember I moved to Ohio and I was like, I'm going to walk to school today. And it was the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. It was right, right. Like, so hot and so humid. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I do want to kind of end up back north. Like, you know, Mike, uh, Michael James Olson, he he got the job at uh, Mankato in Minnesota, right. which is like, he talks about how that's his dream job. And I'm like, well, yeah, that was my dream job, too. Why'd you have to get it one year before I could apply? <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. So I, I I don't know how much that part of the world influenced me, uh, but I do love it up there. Uh, and I would happily take a job in, in Minnesota or if... If there was a music school in North Dakota with a, a composition program, I'd take one, but they don't they don't really have that yet. So yeah, man, the well, I mean, I I I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, so you know, mm-hmm. 20, 20 minutes from Bowling Green. Um, yeah. But ever ever since I moved away, I've only lived in you know pretty hot places, e- either uh, either Arizona or Houston or or now. I mean, where I live in China is is fairly fairly hot in the summer hot like yo i'm sure even, even more hot and humid than houston was and mm-hmm. the cold is just death to me just absolute <laughs> yeah, I death it. i i think like and uh, uh, actually eleni told this to me like when i was back once and i was i was just freezing and she was like yeah yeah you moved away that happens because <laughs> i guess when she when yeah. she was down in north texas it happened to her like she can't she like if you move away, you can't take the cold anymore. It's just permanently not mm-hmm. part of your physiological makeup. 
but huh, that's why I, I wonder if I'm gonna lose. I hope I don't lose that. Right now, I'm pretty good. Like I, I see. I don't my- think you're gonna <laughs> lose it just being down in the Indiana. I think <laughs> yeah. you'll be fine. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We still get we get winter here, and I put that in air quotes because my friends here will be like, "Oh, it's cold out." I'm like, "Nice. It's not. You're just not prepared for this. <laughs> like, it's not. It's not cold." <laughs> on the on the very flip side, it gets down to like 50 yeah. degrees here, and I'm like, "God, it's cold. What is happening?" <laughs> yeah. No. See, I I'd love it. Shorts yeah, and t-shirt. It's, I'd it's be great. Not, okay. <laughs> um so I want to I want to move on to your to your piece launch sequence. This is just a guess of mine. Um but in programmatic it, it seems to make sense with after listening to the piece but the pro- programmatic intent is the launch of some sort of spacecraft is that is that right? Um I mean very incidentally that sort of came after the fact believe it or not. Okay. The re- the I mean there there's two reasons and you're not wrong because I will admit there was some imagery and some ideas of sort of like capsules detaching and like you know explosive propulsion guiding it so you're not wrong in in picking up on that and that was there but but really it came from the idea of that the the first formal section of the piece sort of guided by one texture has like five big arrival points like five big drum hits and then Mm -hmm. the next section has like four hits of a similar kind then three hits then two and then a final one and so I was thinking like this countdown to a to a launch really. So it was more about creating the big formal structure, um, and then sort of maybe populating it with with spaceship sounds <laughs> or you know whatever they might be. And part of, the other big reason was because um, I was studying with Michael Pounds when I wrote that piece, and he he used to be an engineer for NASA, you know, before mm-hmm. he became a composer. And right. so I just sort of like I just kept picturing him like flying a space shuttle around or something. I don't know. That was just the <laughs> image in my head. As that's I was a, in that's the a great image. Working. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I no matter what he tells me, I will assume until the day I die that he flew space shuttles every day at NASA. That that's just what his job was. Um, because it does it does have that kind of yeah that uh, um, capsule separation mm-hmm. in it. You know the, those moments where it just goes down to nothing and then a big explosion. So it it kind of made sense that way. Okay, but here hearing the hearing the real thing is is good. Um, so. So a countdown. All right. Um, yeah. The, I think there's there's a really great sense of movement in the two channel space, um, mm-hmm. and it gives it gives the sounds an edge. You know, as as if they're almost dangerous in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, can, can you talk about some of the some of the sound sources or the or your manipulation techniques or or how yeah, how you, how you achieve that. That that sounding of like whoa that that came out of nowhere and it sounds, you know, like it could hurt me. Yeah, no, and well, and I'm glad that you say that because it was supposed to be kind of visceral and almost like violent, you know, of, of a piece at times. So that was that was absolutely something I was going for. Um, a couple of things. One, I do want to give um, a big credit to Scott Wyatt on that. Actually, not that I, I mean, I didn't go to Illinois, but he came as our guest last year. Ball State for our new music festival. I got one lesson with him and I played that piece for him. And so the first thing you mentioned of like sounds in the stereo field, he gave me better advice, I think, than I've ever heard in, in about an hour about spatialization, especially within the stereo field. That that man is an absolute master of moving sound in space. So I got great advice on really just making sure that every sound sort of had its own unique space, not just left to right, but front and back through reverberant fields and different reverberant spaces, you know, and, and making sure that if a sound sort of impacted somewhere that the reverb stayed there but the rest of the sound moved because I didn't really think about how little sense that made until I realized I was panning my reverb. And I was like, right, yeah, right, you right. know, that sounds, that sounds, you know, because no one had told me. And it, it's just, you don't necessarily think of that, you know? Yeah, space, um, space then, doesn't move. <laughs> exactly, I know, right? But it was like, ah, that sounds cool when that big wash of reverb moves across my ears. 
Um, so, so that's where a lot of the space came from. The, the, the sound sources, um, that piece was kind of, I, I was helping Mike Pounds teach a history of like sonic arts class at the time. And I had gained a real sense of appreciation for, um, composers and pieces that were done in like the seventies and eighties on just like a single synthesizer, you know, like silver yeah. apples of the moon, for example, it just blew my mind what people were doing with like just a bukla, you know? And, and I realized, I was like, man, look how much we have. And I'm just doing nothing of the sort, you know, like I, <laughs> Morton Sabotnik would go crazy, you know, like to have something like this back in, in that day. And so I, I set this limitation on myself, at least initially was to try to do a whole piece with just the, um, sculpture soft synth built into logic Ooh. that I know a lot of composers really like. Yeah. yeah. Um, cause, cause that's, that's become really popular, I think, cause it makes pretty gnarly sounds pretty easily. Yeah. And so, so the first section of that piece where it's sort of guided by low drums, um, that whole first about minute and a half was nothing but sounds created in sculpture. Um, because I just wanted to test that limit and see how many sounds can I make and how can I shape them and do all this. And then, uh, I'd say, you know, a huge portion of the rest of the piece is also sounds from sculpture, but I was just sort of needing to uh, meet a deadline and I was getting just less results out of that synth as I went. And so I ended up adding a few other soft synths, um, but it was actually with the exception of just about three samples, I think, which are some metallic hits, a couple of the low drums, and then like the little glass sound at the very end. It was actually all synthesis just from one one soft synth or another. Wow, that's, that's incredible because I think thought i mean i i realized that there were you know i thought the the low stuff were were synths but i thought i i really felt like a lot of that stuff was you know recorded uh like yeah a, like a real sound that was recorded so that's incredible cool thank you yeah it was fun i and uh, that it, i mean it wasn't necessarily intentional to make it sound like concrete sounds that's just you know i was uh I was working the synth until it sort of sounded that way because that's what I wanted. You know, it's like I'm right, used to yeah. working with audio. So I was like, well, let's let's not make let's... it sound bleep bloopy. And you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, that uh, that sculpture, uh, it, it, it's pretty good. I actually I actually did a similar project um, this mm -hmm. this uh, this last summer. I was working with our percussionist here, and we did. Um, he he wanted to write a. He wanted me to write a piece for Timpani and uh, Fix Media, and I was like, "That really doesn't sound like something I want to do." And he was like, "Well, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, I'll I'll write the Timpani part. You write the Fix Media." And I'm like, "Okay, that that sounds better." Um, and uh, <laughs> for that piece, I think we used two 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 uh, recordings. One was a air raid mm -hmm. siren, and uh, another was. Um, just uh, just real instruments that he wanted to you know complement the live timpani sound with, but sculpture mm -hmm. was sculpture was a big thing. I also used a lot of the um, uh, oh, now I can't I can't remember which which of the synths, but you know some of the FM synths. You can get a lot mm -hmm. out of that stuff if you yeah, well, yeah. if you really spend the time with it, and you know just just don't use it out of the box, but like really turn some knobs and move some faders yeah. and oh my god all of a sudden you're getting this whole new world that uh, oh yeah. yeah that to to the composers who lived you know 20, 30 40 years ago that was that was it so it's mm -hmm. interesting that 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 um i guess need for experimentation comes from your comes from your study of the the past where that was that was all they had yeah, yeah. It, it sounded like just you know. I mean, you you can make the case that you know composition is nothing but a, a set of rules. You know, at any given moment. You know, because like 
I'm writing a piece for piano and I decide not to have a triangle part because why am I going to include, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> if that's it, you know, I mean, so I'm writing a piece for this soft synth. Why couldn't I do every soft synth? You know, like I'm just, I, you have to have a limit at some point, you know, because you're not going to write the white noise symphony. And so sometimes I like to make as many of those decisions in advance as I can and then just sort of see what you can do in those confines. It makes it more of a game at times, you know? Um, and I mean, I, I will break away from that. I'm one of the first people to break that rule. You know, obviously I said I didn't stick with sculpture for the whole piece, but it, it helped me get the whole thing started and, and it was useful. I don't know, man. I think that every solo piano piece you write from now on, <laughs> put that triangle in. Resi I'm just going to put <laughs> resist that urge to uh, <laughs> yeah. to keep to keep that solo thing going. Put the triangle in. Yeah. I think you'll get some results. <laughs> I'll just prepare the piano with the triangle. Just kind of right. jam it in the strings. It'll be perfect. <laughs>
So in uh, in preparing for this uh, for this talk, I was yeah. you know I was looking for uh, looking on your website and looking looking up different different stuff that you've put out there. You don't put a lot out about your about your pieces, like no, not a ton. Yeah, yeah. Is that is there is there anything behind that intention, or is or is this kind of keeping with the the rhetorical sensibility that you kind of brought up with your 
your adjective. <laughs> Maybe. Well, I mean, I, let me just to clarify, are you talking about like in terms of like programmatic info about pieces and like that sort of stuff? Like what guided pieces to be? Like what, what do you exactly mean by I don't have much out there on a, on a piece? Just so I make sure I, I know. Yeah. I mean, any, like I was, I was trying to find uh, information about uh, 704 and oh yeah <laughs> yeah i just i just saw the um the address and i was like okay well that gives me something but then on on launch sequence there you know there's there's nothing out there are you not a fan of of program notes or i mean i i'm a lesser fan of program notes than some i'm not against them but often i'm, I'm sort of begrudged when i feel the need to or when i'm forced to write them for because like i remember for a few festivals a while back i was like they said like send me your program notes and i said i was like no and then they were like well we're, no. and then they were like well we're not going to play your piece and i was like okay fine you know i don't know i i guess maybe just because and i know you can relate to this sometimes program notes are terrible and long-winded yeah. and pretentious and, and you know I, I often find that i mean sometimes i read them sometimes i don't because i i often at least my music is intended to be a bit more just abstract and and just you know uh, absolute. You take it, you listen. I'm not trying to necessarily, you, you, you take from it what you will. And if you, if you want to know a bit about my intentions of it, great. But I, I'm, I'm hoping it stands without the need for a, a very lengthy explanation in advance in prose of what it is, you know, and, and right. it, it, that's, it, yes, that's connected probably to my rhetorical idea of it. I'm hoping that that sort of rhetorical function in the music does what the program notes might do for a piece in a very different style. You know, um, I, Maybe I should include them, but thus far I I've been happy to leave it a bit more vague and just let the listener take it. You know, I think it I I think it really does justice to to your music to not have a bunch of information because and I mean not just your music but any music because I think it focuses the listener so much more where they're like oh well it's not you know it's not just given to me I I, I don't know how to think or feel so I really have to pay attention. You know, I really have to yeah. focus focus on the act of listening and and be engaged with the piece to get any information out of it. So I think I think it it's you know I I totally think it's the right move. It's just <laughs> I just think it's hilarious that you know send us your program about no. Yeah, no 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 I'm yeah. not doing that. that that doesn't sound like something I'm gonna do so no. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was like, uh, I think that was like, I think that was electronic music Midwest. Like it was like oh, yeah. six years ago. It was like my very first like time getting accepted to like kind of a, you know, like a real festival, you know, like it was my first right. semester at Bowling Green. And I already mentioned I was Mr. Big graduate student. So right. I was, <laughs> I was sending you emails it, like, man. oh no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I knew, I knew what was up. Um, when, let me, let me just get the, get the time timeline straight. When were you at B BG? What uh, let's see, it would have been 2000, uh, got in the fall of 2011, graduated in the spring of 2013. Did we actually meet in 2012 um, at the New Music it, Festival? It was whichever festival, yeah, whichever festival would have been the first one. Uh, were you there for David Lang? No, I was there for John Luther Adams. Yeah, we would have met at John Luther. I think there's the pic there's a group picture of us sure, um, that sure, Eleni sure. took as she always does. And uh, I think yeah. that's the first photo evidence of us meeting. It was at that concert. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I was just trying to get I, my my timeline straight. Yeah. When were, when I, were it was you I think EMM? it was nothing more than a hello. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. EMM the the year before John it was the David Lang year, I think was my first year at so 2011 or um is EMM in the fall? It's in the fall, right? Yeah, yeah, it's in the fall. 
Oh, actually, no, because I would have written the piece. So it would have been the fall of 2012 was my first time at EMM. It was a piece for a solo woodblock and electronics. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Good, let, Which was tell, tell me about that. <laughs> that that sounds awesome. Well, th- see, that's the exact same thing. It was a self-imposed limitation because, um, you know, Eleni's piece, uh, her big uh, percussion electronics piece, right, that Scott Deal always plays? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the rush of the brook stills the mind. Well, she was writing that the same time I was like, you know, I think I want to write a percussion piece for with electronics. And I was like, so what are you writing for? And she's like, well, I've got this whole truckload of drums that he's going to bring. And it's it's like every instrument in the world. She's like, what are you going to do? I was like, there are bu- oh, yeah. uh, bowls and chimes. Yeah, there's and bowls all, and, like, and yeah, cast yeah. iron skillets. Yeah. And so I thought, no, I'll go the other way. You know? <laughs> so I was like, Hyper minimalism. So, yeah. One wood block. And actually, like, it's funny because she, she thought that was the worst decision in the world. And for a while, I was, I wasn't, um, I wasn't sure that she was wrong because the piece was not shaving up. But then it got to the end. And I remember she was admitted. She's like, you know what, Carter? The piece works. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> if she can say that, then I am, I'm very okay. And I actually, I still kind of like that piece. I think I was actually talking with Adam Vidixis at Splice last summer of seeing if he would want to play it sometime. I gotta, I gotta make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, that's like almost on the level of solo triangle music. But that's yeah. that's so cool. <laughs> Except the triangle, you I think you can almost do a bit more with the triangle because you can kind of mute oh, it. You know, the wood block, it's just <laughs> like, it's just a wood block, and then you're done. You know, there's there's no more. So there were actually. So I ended up doing a lot of things like um, depending on the wood block, it would like analyze the the fundamental of that wood block, and then do like FM synthesis based on that frequency and stuff like stuff like that to do anything to create more timbres. You know, right? It was, yeah, it was fun. Oh, that's cool. Um, so. The last question I want to ask, it's kind of kind of a big question, but how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your career, for your life? Yeah, no, that that is a big question. It's a very good question, though. Luckily, I can I can pretty easily, although somewhat embarrassingly, answer that. And this will be, I think, the first time this answer goes on record. So here nice. we go. There's no going. Love it. There's no going back from this. Some people know this, but so uh, when I was like um, about 12 years old. Um, we were in Minneapolis visiting my oldest sister, and my other sister and her were like out walking, and they found like just a bunch of CDs that someone had thrown out a window into like a shrub. Just a bunch of old. We assumed it was like a breakup, you know, and like <laughs> someone threw out their boyfriend's or girlfriend's CDs. Screw right? that was you, the idea. Steven, get out of here. Yeah, that, that kind that, of thing. No, that's yeah. kind. Of, yeah, which it could have been. Who knows? They, but anyway, they figured you know CDs sitting in a shrub. These are probably up for grabs, so they took a bunch of them. And so on the on the drive back to Minot, it's like a nine hour drive, and I think we did it like mostly in one stretch, and it got to kind of the, it got to be nighttime, and we were going through these CDs, and then my sister uh, Leslie grabbed this one, and it was the it was a highlights of the original Broadway recording of Phantom of the Opera by Andrew Lloyd Webber, and so you have to you have to like take this all into to consideration because first of all I'm 12 right, so I'm like super angsty, and yeah. then I I listen yeah, yeah. to this musical that's like about like this like angsty dark guy who like lives in a basement and writes music, and I was like you know I kind of like writing music, <laughs> I was like I, that's totally gonna be me someday, and so I had this like insanely romanticized ideal of that music and connecting it to me because again I'm 12 you know and so I I like uh, like the day after we got back I asked my my sixth grade music teacher I was like hey can I have some staff paper and she's like here you go and I remember I still actually have like the very first thing I wrote which was this oh, little man. solo piano piece yeah I, I'm, I'm glad I've kept it it's fun and the, my handwriting was so much neater back then um, 
And so, so I started writing music and then, um, I've even, I have other pieces. I, we, luckily my dad, um, he was, he owns a commercial advertising agency. So I grew up around like cameras and video production, which of course translates super well to audio production. You know, I, he bought me, um, a copy of like, uh, sonar you know um that daw that right, no yeah. one uses anymore um and but i grew up and i we had like a uh, a yamaha clavinova which has you know a, a, they're pretty good sounds you know digital right. midi especially back in the mid 90s those were those were actually pretty good and so i grew up you know doing a little record like i'd record a layer on that and run it into sonar and then you know multi-track and do all that kind of stuff and so by the time i was finishing high school i realized that like i'm gonna do music and I, I was a singer. I was in theater. I played violin. I wasn't sure of the track. So for a while, I was maybe going to go into musical theater and then vocal performance. And then I, I heard about this degree program at Concordia where I could study theory composition. And I, I found my way there. And there was really no going back from that point. I, I was a music major in composition from day one. And I have never, never, <laughs> never faltered from the path. <laughs> I just figured, let's go. Like if, I, if you're going to study music composition, you just got to you just got to go for it. Head head down, you know. Um. Do you remember what, uh, which production of Phantom it was? Like where it came from? It, I'm I'm pretty sure it was the London recording. I know it was Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman singing. Okay. Um, the the two lead parts. Um, but I'm, I'm whether just, or not, it, yeah. I'm just yeah. curious <laughs> because I had a very very similar thing in w- when I was young. Because, but I I know for a fact that uh, the the highlights that I had were from um, the Canadian production. I think it was the Toronto version. I cannot remember uh, the singer. Yeah, it's Combe Wilkinson. Is that's his name. it. That's it. Yeah, yep. he he was the guy who did um, Jean Valjean in Les Mis too. He made that role famous. He's a great singer. Yeah. 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 Great <laughs> singer. And you know, I've I've heard other versions of Phantom, and mm-hmm. and maybe it's just because like I grew up with the the Colm Wilkinson one, but no other Phantom does it for me like like see every, everyone says that for whoever they heard because for me it's like if it's not michael crawford i think it's a different musical right <laughs> like, exactly it's not worth my time no, eject exactly. the cd you know yeah well and i i find that i'm kind of that way with with some you know recordings that i had when i was young like there mm-hmm. is no other right of spring than the bernstein right of spring for me Oh yeah, 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 and <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, can't. and I know it's not. It might not be the best right of spring out there, you know, interpretation wise. But I don't care. It's like mm-hmm. that's what I grew up with. I know every, I know every beat. I know every second of that recording. So yeah. there's, I, I, I don't even want to listen to anything else because it's so, yeah. it's so different, and it's so not what I view the right of spring as. Because the right of spring had, you know, it had a big impact on me as a, as a kid. So. I'm never going to deviate from that Bernstein recording, but the the Phantom of the Opera, yeah. When I was a kid, we would take these long driving trips um, mm-hmm. to you know to go see some dead president's house somewhere because my father just <laughs> sure. absolutely loved you know presidential history. So mm-hmm. all of our trips included visiting some dead president's house. I mean, even if we were going to the beach or something, we had to stop off because there was a dead president three <laughs> hours away from the beach. <laughs> Anyway, um, but my parents, you know, had that that cassette tape of the um, of the uh, highlights from the Toronto, and we listened to that a mm. lot. And I feel like, yeah, that I and I felt like it was kind of embarrassing too that <laughs> that I that yeah. I loved you know that I loved this uh, musical so much. But that was a big part of my my childhood as well. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it, as far as a lot of Broadway musicals go, I think it's scored wonderfully. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's a lot of great instrumentation, and a lot of cool things happen there. I mean, it gets really cheesy with some of the rock opera stuff and right, a few yeah. parts. But other times, I, I think it stands ahead of the pack from a lot of Broadway musicals. And so I think, that, you know, it has that very classical-esque tradition, even if it is kind of very forced at times but it, it you know it connected to some of the stuff i was playing as a violinist and you know i was also a singer at that time so there was just so many things to sort of pull me in and then it just it, it advanced this ideal of like music composition being above all these other things and i just really felt like i need to try that and see if that's a thing that i can do as well and it you know it, it turned out to be obviously very fulfilling but uh, it all sort of germinated from that <laughs> that broadway recording of all things <laughs> well it's, I, I think it's kind of a gateway you know like that, for me, that that allowed me to view classical music as something that wasn't this stuffy, pretentious thing that I didn't that I didn't want to be involved mm -hmm. in. It's like that that one experience with with uh, well, multiple experiences with Phantom, um, that it seemed like it kind of opened up a world that I had just kind of written off. Mm -hmm. Did, was that similar for you? Um, I don't know if I, I feel like I was actually really being in, I, I hadn't had time to write it off yet. I was being introduced to it for the first time, I think is more accurate because, um, again, you know, similar to my undergrad in, in Minot, talk about a closed off community from, from, uh, new music or, or even anything, you know, so like my, my, uh, high school string teacher, he, great violinist and great teacher, but he, he, uh, like hated Brahms and onward. I mean, so. honestly, like he, he was like, we play like Rococo music and that's oh, what we do, you know? Wow. And so I, I honestly had no idea of like, even the, the late, I didn't know what Wagner was like all, you know, it was just a very isolated musical upbringing. Um, because my parents weren't especially musical people either. So they weren't introducing things to me, you know, like I was just sort of trapped in that. So actually Phantom was almost like, to me, like, like right of spring might've been to you in yeah. that it was a, a gateway to, and I didn't know that people were still like writing music with orchestras and sing, you know, I didn't know that that was still happening. No one told me. And so right. I, I heard it when I was like 12, I was like, oh my gosh, people do this. You, you didn't get the memo on that? Yeah, no, I had no clue. I thought, I thought composers wore white wigs and they died 200 years ago. No clue. People were still writing me. I thought John Williams must've just been a a robot and they just made him up like something you know like clearly clearly there was no music being written in my lifetime and so I, I once I discovered it it meant that you know a I could do it too and that b you know like this is this is a thing that I like it, it was great